What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. Now, in our last episode, we reviewed Kazar number two, which is the first of the three-part Jerry Siegel angel story uh, from early 1970. We'll talk more about that a little bit later. But as a quick recap, Angel was out in his uh, civilian identity as uh, Warren Worthington III, the billionaire playboy with his wings strapped down under his clothes. He went on a hot date with his girlfriend, Candy Southern. And uh, while they were there, he got the news that his father had been murdered by the mysterious and evil Dazzler, not to be confused with the more popular Allison Blair. Uh, Angel, weirdly in his grief, blamed his girlfriend for his father's murder because he is distraught and she took him out dancing. Uh, and he wants revenge, but FBI agent Fred Duncan is trying to stop him. Meanwhile, the uh, Dazzler has built an evil supervillain lair in the base of the Statue of Liberty because it is 1978. That's what you did back then. We'll talk more about the rest of that, or the second part of that story in a little while. Uh, first, I am so happy to welcome my friends Derek Kunskin and Rowan Fraser back. Uh, it's so good to see you both. And I am uh, verklempt and excited and thrilled to welcome uh, the incredible Lenore Zan to my show. Uh, you may know Lenore as a uh, voice actress of cartoon and video games, as an actress of television stage and uh, and uh, uh, geez, you've done a lot of things, uh, film as well. Uh, she's an activist, she's a politician, she's a singer, she's an author. I, uh, I am a, a huge fan and I'm just fanboying out over here. Uh, let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let me know your names, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And our weird question today, uh, there's a two-parter. Are you a betrayer or a bumbler? And are you more of an inept ape or a despicable dullard? And why? Well, this is a, a silly, silly quote from our issue today. We'll, uh, we'll uh, repeat that as needed. Uh, let's begin with Lenore. Hi. Well, howdy there, sugar. How you doing? <laughs> it's so nice to be here on your show. Thank I'm you so for happy to have you. I'm telling you, and when you were telling the story about Dazzler and the boyfriend, and of course he blames the girlfriend, don't they always? <laughs> I mean, and, you know, and why did he blame her? Because she took him out dancing? I mean, come on, right? I think Rogue should show up and, and, and tell him a thing or two. What do you think? That might make it a little bit more interesting. Rogue didn't exist technically yet, but yes, that would be an amazing spin in the story. <laughs> Maybe she could time travel back, you know, and, and take care of things. But no, it's it's great to be here. Um, I'm very excited about X-Men 97, of course, coming back. I'm about to start recording season two when I go back home to Nova Scotia. Um, I'm in sunny Spain right now, but tomorrow I'll be winging my way back to the snow country and also going to Chicago for the weekend for the Comic-Con. So that'll be exciting. Now, what are the two questions you want us to so, answer? First one, are you more of a betrayer or a bumbler? Well, now, I guess that would depend on who is involved and which character I might be playing. I could be a betrayer, but then again, I could be a bit of a bumbler. I don't tend to bumble, though. So, no, I don't tend to 
fumble too much. I'm probably be a betrayer. A, a willful betrayer. And the other one is, uh, are you more of an inept ape or a despicable dullard? <laughs> Maybe an inept dullard. <laughs> <laughs> Or a despicable ape? I don't know. Um, that's a, that's a good question. I'd have to sleep on that one. Uh, these are uh, these are ridiculous nineteen uh, seventies <laughs> villain speeches. We'll get to later in the show. Oh, uh, okay. Now, Lenore, I know you interact with a ton of X Men fans. I thought it would be fun and maybe a pleasant surprise to invite uh, two Canadians on with you today. So let me turn okay. it over to Mr. Rowan Fraser. Hi, Rowan. Hello. Uh, Hello. Tell us about yourself. Uh, so I'm Ron Frazier. I go by he, him. Uh, I mean, people would know me. I've been on a couple episodes of this, but you would probably more know my voice from the horror podcast. It slays podcasts. We're an LGBTQ focused podcast. We review horror movies. Uh, yeah, we're out pretty much weekly. We review new stuff that's in the theater, old stuff from your VHSs, as well as, uh, a new thing we've started called stream screens where we scour the free service of Tubi and look for the worst looking horror movies and then uh, see how bad they really are. <laughs> Sounds like fun. <laughs> Rowan's been on my show a couple times whenever we have a, a terrible 60s horror characters on my show I usually invite Rowan uh, but, but today uh, I'm just happy to have uh, have you here again my friend now are you more of a betrayer or a bumbler Rowan I think I'm going to have to go with Bumbler. I, I feel I hope I'm not a betrayer, but I mean, who knows? Under the right circumstance, maybe uh, I'm willing to throw someone under the bus there. I'm not sure. Uh, and are you more of an inept ape or a despicable dullard? Uh, I mean, even if I wanted to be a dis uh, despicable dullard, I feel I'm an inept ape. So uh, that's probably what I'd be described as. So I'll have to go with that one. Uh, and then finally over to my friend, uh, Derek Kinskin, who you may know from my show from a number of places, but also as the recent winner of our uh, Silver Age X-Men Jeopardy game. Hi, Derek. How are you? Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I'm Derek Kinskin. I go by he, him. Uh, I'm a science fiction writer, and you may have seen me on the show, but also uh, books like The Quantum Magician or The House of Sticks. Um I uh, I used to think I was smart, and uh, the more I learned about the world, the more I realized I probably am a bumbler, and there's less I know. So I feel like I'm on this slow train of getting dumber as I go. So I'm definitely a bumbler. I, um, I'm i also Canadian. Uh, I'm very near Ottawa, Canada, but I'm on the Quebec side. So in Gatineau, Quebec, uh, we wouldn't use the word bumbler. I'd be an épais. Um, that's the word in Quebecois French for you know somebody who's just thick as a block of wood. Um, and as far as dullard, I feel like, um, that's maybe a little more dumb than I'm willing to admit to. And so I'm going to go for the inept ape. <laughs> <laughs> and then lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns as well. You know me from this show. I'm also a former Marvel comics handbook writer, uh, an author and a documentarian. I, uh, I have gotten to meet some of my childhood heroes and people that I look up to and love. Uh, Lenore, you've been on my list for a long time, and I'm so grateful to uh, Dayspring from Power of X-Men for uh, introducing us. Uh, he is just uh, lovely and a good friend of mine, and I know you've know, done a lot of work with him. I am going back to high school as I'm hearing you talk, and I'm picturing all of the X-Men cartoon. You were, Rogue was my favorite, of course. 
Uh, I'm really excited for X-Men 97. I've done a couple interviews related to that on this show, but you sound just like her, which of course, because you are her, but I feel like I'm talking to Rogue. It's a, it's amazing. It's so yeah, it, it's funny. You know, when I, um, when I first met the producers of the new show, when they asked me to come and have a Zoom meeting with them, and they just kept sort of like gasping because they were like, I can't believe I'm talking to Rogue, right? They just... They're like, but you like you are you sound like her. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I, uh, yeah. That's because I am her, you know. <laughs> but um, I forget sometimes the effect that it has on people uh, because I'm just I basically just used my own voice, but you know, with a, a bit of a southern accent. It's, and it's uh, changed much my voice over the you, years. Yeah, you have a you have a way of delivering her lines with kind of a lilt and uh, like a little bit of emotion and passion. You've got a little bit of a uh, uh, like a rasp to it sometimes yeah. that makes it such yeah. a unique cartoon character voice. And of course, Rogue is just uh, such a lovely, lovely uh, character. Uh, I want to open the show, and I know you've answered this question in a number of interviews, and I'm not going to retread a lot of ground, but can you talk to us about getting the part of Rogue in uh, in the original X-Men show, and what it's kind of been like to represent that character over the years? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I, I, as I have said before in other interviews, I did not do voiceover work really before X-Men. I, I had done... A, one show, one animated show, and just a tiny little bit of, of voice stuff. But I was mainly like a, a movie actress, a television actress, and theater. Plus, I had actually really uh, done some radio. Like, I'd done radio dramas. We did a lot of them in Canada for the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, back in the day. And I won a Best Actress Award in, for the Actras, or in 1986 for my voice and that was my first radio drama so but I mainly did movies and television and theater so when my agent in Toronto asked me to go and do this audition for some cartoon show I kind of went eh, you know a cartoon show I'm you know I'm not really that interested and so the very first time she asked me to go I I blew it off I didn't go and then about a month or so later, she called me again and she said, Lenore, they have not found the right actress for this role that they're looking for. They want somebody with a sexy, husky voice who can do a Southern accent. And that is you. <laughs> and I think they haven't found her because you haven't gone in there yet. So get your ass in gear and go. So I did. I went in. I saw the drawing of the of the character with her arm on her on her hip and this sassy attitude, and I went, "Oh, yeah, I can do that," you know. And uh, I walked in the booth. I put the headphones on, and I read the lines that they had there for me, which were, oh, "My daddy liked to kill himself when he found out I was a mutant." <laughs> you know, get out of my mind. I remember. When I was 13, I had me a boyfriend, had me a boyfriend till I kissed him. Poor boy went into a coma for three days. 
right? And I heard this like scream from the other end of the phones from the producers in LA because they were in LA, we were in Toronto, and I heard them go. And it turned out it was it was Larry Larry Houston, the director. He told me, um, and he was like, "Don't let her leave the building." That's her. <laughs> And the rest is history. That's how it happened. That is phenomenal. And I know you have a whole career, but I know that this is often the role people associate uh, uh, most with you. We, you know. uh, I, I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks and grew up with a, a little and kind of a twang in my voice. And I, I don't have it now until I get around people who speak in a Southern accent and then my my drawl comes back really easy. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm gonna try not to slip into uh, my hillbilly voice as we're talking. Um, the, uh, the character of Rogue, of course, means a tremendous amount in the X-Men franchise. We haven't had the pleasure of getting to that character on my show yet outside of just general discussion, but she's someone who can't control her power. She's got the heart of gold. She's not always the smartest character, but she's always the most well-meaning. Uh, she's loyal. She's kind of internally tortured, but she always gets back up and always fights again. And I know that character means a lot to women and to X-Men fans. And a lot to even the LGBTQ community, although she's not on that spectrum. Uh, I know you have uh, queer fans just regularly gushing over what you have meant to them. Uh, and I hope you know that that's been transcendent for a lot of people. Uh, your your work with this character has really changed a lot of people. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I, I do have to say that it moves me to no end, really to know how much she has touched the lives of so many people, especially in the LGBTQ2 plus community, because they've told me that they just felt so lonely and so alone and when they were growing up and, and they just felt like they didn't fit in, they didn't belong and who the hell were they? And they said like when she, when Rogue went to Mural Island in the episode, The Cure, yeah. Because she thinks she needs to get cured of what makes her different from everybody else. Because she's afraid to love. She's afraid to let her guard down because she's afraid to be intimate. Because she knows that she'll probably she could kill the person that she loves. And she almost did with Cody, right? Her her boyfriend when she was 13. And so many of the LGBTQ2 plus community have said to me how important it was when she went to Muir Island because she thought she needed a cure, but she suddenly realized that it was her her uniqueness, it was her differentness that made her who she was and that she realized she had to claim that and accept herself for who she is and love it because now it, it's also what makes her somebody who can help others who can help humankind save themselves. And when she says, you know, there ain't no cure for who you are, that's a really powerful statement. And I would always add, nor should there be a cure for who you are, because you are who you are, we are who we are, and, and we need to, to love and accept ourselves. And so I think that's really important. Even before she learned to love herself, she had this determination to, I'm still going to give back. I'm still going to be a hero. I'm still going to be powerful anyway. And I think that that speaking as a queer person, I uh, 
I remember learning how to contain that energy. And now I work as a therapist in my day job and I'm working with, awesome. uh, with queer and trans people all the time. And like, this is not something you have to change. It's something that you just embrace and you get to figure out who you are. Right. Now, right. outside of all this, and this is a big question, not for Rogue, but for Lenore Zan, what are you passionate about? <laughs> I'm passionate about all of the things you just described. I'm passionate about trying to help people learn that we're all one, that this world is a very tiny, tiny little planet, and we all need to get along, and we need to help each other, and love each other, and support each other, and help pr protect the earth, protect the planet from, you know, ourselves, our own stupid self-destructive impulses, right? Um, so in that way, I really relate to to Rogue. She She is me, and I am her. Now, I had Rob Salerno, who's a good friend of mine from Canada, on the show once, and we were talking about random X-Men trivia facts. And he goes, my favorite fun fact about the X-Men is Lenore Zan, the voice of Rogue, went on to be, be a member of the Canadian Parliament. Uh, tell us about your work as a politician and an activist. I think this is something that surprises a lot of X-Men fans. Well, I mean, uh, I was an actor ever since I was... Uh, 17. I became professional at 17, started doing theater, movies, television, radio, you know, all that stuff. And then I decided that I really wanted to make a difference in another way uh, to try and help create a world that is habitable for many years to come. And that also uh, I can help to make the world a better place in a human way as well with again you know with people reaching out and helping others and so forth so at one point um i was asked to run for politics in my local area in nova scotia i moved back home from new york and la and all these other places and i was asked to run for a party called the new democratic party uh in nova scotia and I was told by other people, including my mother and my sister, oh, you don't have a chance, you're crazy, you'll never win, all of this kind of stuff. Plus, the, the area that I was running in was conservative. It was traditionally conservative. And this, this is a more left-wing party. But lo and behold, I won in a landslide. People called it a Zanslide. And... Uh, <laughs> And I won, you know, because I was just myself and I talked about my beliefs and my and what I want to try and do. And then I won three more times. So I won. I was in 10 years in provincial politics as what what would be like a congresswoman in the United States, member of the Legislative Assembly in Canada. And then I was asked by Prime Minister Trudeau to run for the Liberals federally the Liberal Party federally uh, about three years ago. I met with him. I really liked what he had to say. I believed in what he was trying to do. And so I said, yes, I will run federally. And so I ran with the Liberal Party and I won that and went up to Ottawa. And I introduced a bill about environmental racism, which um, can be discussed later. But that bill has now been reintroduced and it's going all the way through the House. And today or tomorrow, it's going to probably be sent to the Senate. And it looks like the bill is going to pass. So these are the sort of things I'm very passionate about. 
And sometimes you have to go into different types of work in order to to make things happen that you that you believe in. And and so for 12 years, I did public service as a as a, an elected official. And now I'm I'm back in the saddle as Rogue and doing a few movies and um, other work like that. So it, it's pretty amazing. Two follow-up questions. What is environmental racism for our listeners? And is Justin Trudeau as hot in person as he appears to be in his <laughs> photographs? <laughs> Justin Trudeau is a gorgeous man, both <laughs> inside and out. He's a lovely person. He called my dad on his 89th birthday to wish him a happy birthday. And he called me this year on my birthday when I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard and um, I mean, he's just, he's a really kind person. He believes in the environment and doing as much as we can about climate change, indigenous issues, things like this. So I'm a big fan. Um, and then environmental racism is the disproportionate number of toxic waste sites, dumps, landfills, and corporate polluters that are placed on or beside racialized communities. And that usually means indigenous communities or black communities, which means their health, their health suffers from that potentially a lot more than white people's do. That's basically what it is. So my bill would be an act to create a national strategy to deal with uh, environmental racism and environmental justice. So this is a question for all of you. I'm going to tell a quick story. Right before the pandemic hit, I vacationed by myself in uh, Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia for a week. And when I travel, I'm there to write and I don't make any plans. And I usually just kind of wander and kind of find what I find. I remember walking along the shore one day and there was like a swing dancing class on a dock and then a seal popped out of the water. And then I walked by a, a Native American women's art exhibit. And then I ended up at a, a kitchen party concert I might have been a little bit high by this point, but all of the seats were sold out and they sat me up on a stage and there were people playing fiddles and clogging and they pulled me up to dance. And I was like, I love it here. <laughs> it felt like everything that America's doing right, but without all of the stuff we're doing wrong is how Nova Scotia felt to me. Uh, so a question for all of you, uh, what is it like living in uh, Nova Scotia or in rural Canada? What are the things you love about where you are? I know that's a big question, but uh, I, I love it there so much. Let the other guys go first, because I've been doing a lot of talking. Uh, Rowan, do you want to start that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, for me, as someone, you know, I... Uh, I've lived a couple different places before I moved back here. I'm from rural Nova Scotia, but I lived in Toronto for a couple of years. I lived in Newfoundland for numerous, numerous years, all for school, bachelor's, master's, that kind of stuff. Um, and I mean, I, I came back because, you know, I think uh, one of the friendly uh, stereotypes of us up here is it's just... It's very welcoming. Like where I'm from, uh, Wolfel's a university town. So it, it's lots of different cultures, different people. But like, I, it, it's not the hustle and bustle of a large city. It, it, it's pretty relaxed. Like I can go out at night on my yard and 
sit down, look at the stars. There's not 8 million lights blocking my view. I'm not listening to traffic or people hooting and hollering. I mean, unless there's like a, you know, a university party or something going on, but that's okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I enjoy it. I've also said it everywhere I've lived. I, I think I'd come to appreciate the weather in Nova Scotia more so than other spots in Canada that I have been. Uh, I think this is like a good medium mix of warm, cold, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Derek, how about you? So it's an interesting question. I mean, I grew up in rural Ontario and rural Quebec. And um, right after university, um, I went on about 10 years worth of living in developing countries. So I was in Honduras, Colombia, Cuba, Ecuador, uh, Kosovo, Haiti. And I saw a lot of, you know, you you go to another country and you, you're like, these things work and these things don't. And like, it makes you realize what like your sort of assumptions are when you come home and stuff. And like, the things you can't see, like, for example, like, you know, 20 years ago, I would not have appreciated my healthcare the way I do since having so many American friends and seeing what they're going through, because my natural competitors are like somewhere in Europe and everybody has healthcare there. I have healthcare here. And I mean, we can argue about, oh, this is more efficient there or this is more efficient here. But like just so so I guess um, what I love about Canada is like, I mean, having traveled and having seen other places where things sometimes don't work is, you know, politics is a messy argument about coming to a consensus as that everybody's going to go forward with. And it's messy. But it still seems to work in Canada at the provincial level and at the federal level. And I mean, there are some bumps in the road and there always are going to be. But like that, the fact that it still works, kind of amazing. So that's, that's, I guess, you know, that, that allows me to then go and look at the stars and not be blinded by all the city lights and everything else and, and, and so on. So yeah, I'm very, very appreciative of where I live. Uh, Lenore, how about you? What do you love about where you live? Well, I have to say I am a citizen of the world. <laughs> I'm from Australia. So I actually started off with an Australian accent, which we moved to Saskatchewan, Regina, Saskatchewan, in the prairies in Canada for my very first year in Canada. And we loved it there, but it was really, really cold. And uh, for these Australians, it was a little bit much. And so we heard how beautiful Nova Scotia was. And so we moved to Nova Scotia and my mom and dad have stayed there ever since. And I love it in Nova Scotia, but I had to leave there to go and be an actor. I mean, if I wanted to get work back then, I had to leave. And I, as Derek said, I, I mean, all those countries that he's talked about, I've been to many of them myself. And there's something about each one of them that I really love. And Nova Scotia is special in that, yeah, it's a bunch of really great, ordinary, down-to-earth people who uh, love to have a good time. They're very easygoing for the most part, and they would take the shirt off their back to try and help somebody in need. And, and that's something, I mean, you can find that in most small communities, and Nova Scotia is like one big, small community all the way across. There's only a million people in Nova Scotia from one end of it to the other. Uh, so, yeah, and I love being by the sea. And we are surrounded by the sea in Nova Scotia. It's a peninsula jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean. So, yeah. 
It's beautiful. Uh, my husband and I saw the film, or uh, I'm sorry, the play uh, "Come From Away" recently, which uh, which is not about Nova Scotia, but uh, in the in the neighboring area. And I, uh, I the whole time I was clapping, and like it, it brought back the charm of everything I felt there. It did a really good job of capturing that. Are you guys familiar with the uh, with this production? Yes. Oh yeah. It's it's a wonderful. I mean, when when you said you ended up at a party at a kitchen party and they pulled you up on stage, I thought, geez, well maybe you were coming for come from away. <laughs> That's what they do there, right? They didn't even pull me on the stage. They sat me on the stage. It was sold out, and they sat like ten audience members on the stage, and I was in the middle of the yeah, dance. It was great. Uh, uh, I also went to adorable little gay bar there. Uh, there was a, a drag queen dressed like Lucille Ball. It was it was a really fun time. <laughs> I'm still talking about it all this time later. Now, Marvel weirdly has uh, an entire superhero team that's very closely associated with the X-Men uh, that's run for decades. It's super popular, uh, which is Alpha Flight. Uh, Alpha Flight has uh, a couple people in uh, suits of armor. There's a Sasquatch. There's a Puck. There's a Harry Clod man. There's a Medicine Man. There's a Fish Woman. How does Alpha Flight do, for those of you that may be familiar with these characters, how do they do at representing Canada as their national heroes in the Marvel Universe? <laughs> Take it away, boys. <laughs> I, I, I read the, uh, I read, I think, the uh, the first 25 issues of Alpha Flight while Byrne was there. I was following Byrne around in the 80s. Um, and it was always funny to see, like, you know, such and such a drive in Ottawa, or this is a place in Toronto. So, I mean, there was that bit of a local flavor that way. Um, I always felt like um, like anything could happen in New York. New York was, oh, you know, it's attacked by Galactus. It's attacked by Blastar. It's, you know, Magneto goes to Cape Canaveral. And I just keep wondering, like, okay, nothing really happens to Toronto. Like, you have to, <laughs> you have to go somewhere else to get something really bad to happen. And so I, it always felt a little bit like... Um, I don't know. It, it it wasn't on steroids in the same way as the non-Alpha Flight stuff uh, in the Marvel Universe was. And uh, yeah, but I still, I loved it. Uh, North Star, of course, being a queer icon. There's a ton of mutant characters. Uh, Wolverine's closely associated. There's a lot of X-Men ties to these guys, which is interesting. Uh, Rowan, do you have an opinion on Alpha Flight? I mean, I'm a I'm a massive Alpha Flight. You can't see in the in the background, but off to the side, I actually have like a full run of Alpha Flight from first appearance all the way to current. I I do uh, still keep up with Alpha Flight, but I mean, yeah, I you know, kind of what was said already. Like I remember first picking it up when I was living in Newfoundland, and like those first couple issues of the original Burn Run, uh, you know, they, they're in Newfoundland for some of it. And I was just like, whoa, they like it was the first time I'd ever read a comic that was, you know, about somewhere that I was. And I just kind of automatically connected to it. Uh, also, I mean, I, I was, you know, uh, also a pretty big North Star fan to begin with, but I had never dived into uh, the Alpha Flight side for quite a while. So, yeah, I, I, I'm a huge fan of Alpha Flight. Uh, Lenore, do you have any opinions? You know, I don't know them. I'm really sorry about this. I've heard of some of the characters, but I don't know. I don't know the comics. I haven't read those ones. They're they're interesting. <laughs> there's a, there's a long wild history. Did Canadians write them, or did Americans write them and set it in Canada? They're mostly written by Americans, but there have been some Canadians. <laughs> okay. 
you can certainly tell they uh, didn't always do their homework when they're like, hey, they're in Vancouver now. But you're like, wait, that doesn't look like Vancouver. <laughs> now, Lenore, I know uh, I know things probably shifted a lot for you during the pandemic. You just talked about your uh, political career a little bit. The pandemic hit. Uh, X-Men 97 has been proposed and you've been brought back and you're doing more acting. Tell me a little bit about the last few years of your life and uh, how this uh, how this new revival of this beloved series has has, uh, has happened and affected you. Well, I mean, that's a loaded question. The last few years of my life. Um, it's been a pretty traumatic time, to be honest. Uh we had while I was the member of parliament for my area, which is called Cumberland Colchester, uh, a few months into the pandemic, we had a we were all under lockdown, uh, state of the emergency lockdown. All of the MPs had been sent home, so we we're all like in our own houses. I lived by myself, and you couldn't go anywhere or talk to anybody. Um, I was on my Zoom doing meetings after meetings after meetings. But suddenly then in the middle of that pandemic, three months into it, we had the largest mass shooting in Canada's history happened in my community, in my riding. And this crazed denturist dressed up like an RCMP officer, Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer, and had a fake RCMP car. And he drove around and he killed 22 innocent people across 17 different locations all tiny little small communities, villages, whatever, all in my 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 area. So it was insane. Uh, people were shocked. I mean, we've talked to you about how wonderful and caring and easygoing people are. Like we wouldn't like lock our doors. We'd leave our doors open, you know. But that changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Everybody went into shock. We were all in trauma. All of us were related somehow or other to the people who had been murdered. Um, it was horrendous. And my government, our government, the Liberal government, immediately, two weeks afterwards, we banned 1,500 types of semi-automatic weapons, including rocket grenades, because, of course, people need rocket grenades, just civilians, right? Um, anyway, we, we banned them. And then the gun lobby, gun industry went crazy, and I had come out on, and said that I supported this and that 82% of Canadians supported this and that it was never too soon to talk about better gun control. And so then I suddenly became a target of the gun industry and their members. And I started getting death threats uh, daily and to my office, online, you name it. It was hell for about a year and a half that lasted. And during that time, my lovely little 17-year-old niece who had been adopted from China, little girl, um, she contracted, she had uh, cancer and she died. Mm. So it was just hell. Um, I, I really was anxious, depressed, you name it. Um, and about a month after she died, an election was called. And Nobody was in the mood for an election. And I'd only been in for less than two years and I lost that election. And so then I was even more plunged into um, deep like despair, just didn't know what 
I was doing, why, why I was doing it. I thought maybe not, none of it mattered. Like nothing I had done made any difference after 12 years of, you know, service. And, um, and then suddenly the X-Men called. Suddenly I got a message saying, uh, oh, Disney wants to talk to you about a show. And I was like, yeah, right. Tell me another one. And it was like, and it was true. And so I, I talked to the casting person whose name is Meredith Lane. And she said, no, no, there we're I'm working with Disney and, and um, Marvel. And they're very interested in bringing you back as rogue. Would you be willing to do so? And I was like, hells yeah. <laughs> Show me the studio. <laughs> I'm winging there now and I don't need the Blackbird. Right. <laughs> and I had so much of this pain and angst and I'd just been, you know, slaughtered with all this hate stuff. And I knew what the X-Men were going through and what Rogue had gone through. And it just, I, I was just, I, I said, I don't need to do any homework. Just send me the script and point me to the studio. And, and next thing you know, here we are. So I mentioned uh, I mentioned a minute ago how Canada seems to do it right when America gets it wrong. The difference is this happened and then you made change and you did it boldly and you did it bravely. We're here. We feel stuck. There's literally today as we're recording this, there's news of another mass shooting and there's a war on the LGBT community. And I'm a gay dad with two queer kids. And it's it's just it's rough. But I hear this determination and this joy in your voice. I gave an interview recently. Uh, my kids and I, I like to take them to the, the local drag queen bingo event that they do every month. And mm -hmm. I gave an interview and I say, I walk in and we find our table and we're determined to have a good time. And I take 30 seconds to look at, okay, where's the exit just in case something bad yeah. happens. And then I choose to smile and have fun anyway. And I love that optimism and determination. And thank you for your willingness to share that vulnerability of that rough time with us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you are rogue. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. And, and, and you know what? And like for any of your listeners, I understand what you're going through there. And it must be just awful to feel that you are once again being, you know, told that you can't be who you are and having these politicians who aren't willing to do the right thing and protect you. I mean, you know, like the, the nightclub shooting, all of these things are just this should not be happening. It's not it's not normal and it shouldn't be normalized. Uh, gay marriage had just passed. And then shortly after that, Trump was elected. And I remember feeling like, oh, we're making progress. And then like, oh, fuck, we're not making any progress at all. And I, I think that's where I'm at. I just it feels like you're just beating your head on a wall. But we're but we're also living good lives, you know, like everything's all right. We're OK. Well, that's uh, how I felt when when I lost the election. Right. When my niece died and then I lost the election, I felt like what what's the point? Like nothing makes any difference. You, you just go down the hole and that's it. But what I realize now is um, sometimes when progress is made, the, the pendulum swings the other way for a little bit, but then it's going to come back. And I'm sure that the people who were abolitionists and who were fighting against slavery um, and for, you know, all of the rights of, of, of diverse communities, they've had to put up with this kind of shit too. And 
Um, you know, and you just have to keep coming back swinging and not give up, not everything, give up. Uh, everything from civil rights to LGBTQ rights to environmental racism. Like these are all things we That's have right. to rail That's against. Right. And now, Lenore, I know this is a big subject change, but you uh, you shared with me in your email. You also have a couple of really big projects coming up. You're a, you're a busy woman. What uh, what would you like to talk about as far as uh, you you mentioned an album and a book, and I'm so excited for everything. Thank you. Um, yes, I decided that because of all the stuff I have been through, uh, it was time to write a memoir. And so I have started it. I'm actually now, I just finished chapter 10. And it's called A Rogue's Tale, Awakening the Superhero Within. And I would hope that a lot of people can relate to it because it's about a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the podcast already. Um, it's very interesting to go back over my history and look at all the different incredible people I've met over the years just recently, I was writing the last couple of days about Tiny Tim. I don't know if you guys re re would remember who he was because you're pretty young, but Tiny Tim was uh, We're not that like, young. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he was popular in the late '60s and early '70s. But I met him in Australia, and we we hooked up and we hung out, and he taught me a lot about business and about. Um, he said, you know, you got to get a gimmick if you want to be a star. But yet I didn't want to have a gimmick when I was acting. I wanted to be a full range actor that didn't get stuck as one particular type. Um, and so I fought against that. And the other interesting person I just wrote about recently was Craig Russell, who was this incredible gay icon in the 80s and the early 90s. He was a female impersonator from Canada who he always said, you know, I've got 26 women trapped inside of me. And he said, you try like living with 26 women trapped inside of you. I mean, this guy was amazing. And he showed, he introduced me to Hollywood. The first time I came to Hollywood, I was 20. And I, he, he invited me to his place and he took me to show me Hollywood. And he showed me the underbelly of Hollywood that most people never got to see, which was the gay 80s. It was like fantastic and pre-AIDS as well. But so, you know, doing this book has been very interesting, looking at what makes me who I am. How did I get here anyway? And also what what is what are those strengths that we have to rely upon deep inside of us to pull out when we really need to like say, OK, no, I'm going to I'm going to thrive. I'm going to survive. I'm going to I'm going to push on through whatever it is we're dealing with. So that's been really cool. And then the other thing is my album is called Strong Enough, based on the Cheryl Crow song, Strong Enough. And while we were in lockdown, um, I because I was in politics, I couldn't talk to anybody really too much about my feelings and what I was going through because it, it's really hard. And in living in a small town, too, word goes around. You have to be careful what you say. So instead of being able to have an out, a healthy outlet for that, I decided to go in the studio and record music. So I recorded songs and I went in about for about six months and recorded a different song every couple of weeks. So now I have enough material for about two, two albums and the first one will be coming out in the fall. How would you describe your singing style? Your country? Yeah, I'd say country, country rock. 
Uh, but but I started off in musicals. Like I I played Adelaide in Guys and Dolls. Sure. Right. Like a poison can develop a cold. Uh, <laughs> you know, I started off doing that. I, I played leads in all kinds of musicals. And when I was living in New York, I did. Uh, I did. Um, oh, God. What's the police and oh, law, law and order? I did law and order with Jerry Orbach, who was a Broadway star. And I had listened to on the, my dad's phonograph when I was a kid learning all these musicals. And then I got to work with him on Law & Order. I was a guest star on, on it. So I got to work with him and Sam Waterston, my two, two of my favorite actors. Sure. And, and, and in between takes in February in New York, where it was like minus 30 or something, Jerry would take me in his limousine and we would sing show tunes to each other. We would do like duets from uh, the Fantastics and Brigadoon and Carousel and all these great musicals. And I'm telling you, at the little kid inside of me, the little Nova Scotian girl who had been learning these songs at, as a 15, 16 year old in my, her dad's phonograph in the living room, it was like a dream come true. So, yeah, so my singing is all over. I, I do a lot of different types of singing. Derek. Yeah, no, so I'm 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 off-roading with this. Normally I ask a question to the guest, but this time I have a question for Chad and Rowan about Lenore and the animated series. Um, because, you know, we've talked a lot on this show and on other shows about the X-Men, about how, like, everybody has their own you know, personal origin X-Men, depending on which was their first X-Men comic they ever read. So for example, my X-Men includes a living Phoenix and a depowered Banshee. Um, <laughs> everybody else, you know, has their own. And yet this show, I was looking up the stats, it has like 23 million viewers at the time, um, you know, and like that's 50 to 100 times the number of people who are reading the comics, even in the late 80s, early 90s, when the X-Men was selling, you know, 500,000 to a million copies. Um, and for the vast majority of people, this is the only X-Men they ever know, right? Like they don't go to comics. And then there's another section of people who were introduced to X-Men through the cartoon and then they went to the comics. And I'm just wondering for both Chad and Rowan, how, like how do you situate sort of emotionally and in your head canon and everything else, like the role of an animated series with powerful actors and like the comics that we feel a particular nerdy lonely ownership of like to me that's like such a fascinating thing in part because i missed the animated series because i'd already aged out by then but like so yeah chad and rowan curious as to where you guys place this Ro, you would take this one first yeah sure i mean so it hit me kind of right at the same a you know the right age uh because you know i would have been really young then uh i was born in 87 so, uh, you know, that was my first exposure to X-Men because I don't think I've ever talked about it on the show, but my first exposure in the comics was actually uh, Aliens and Predator. Uh, just I come from a horror movie family and that they also read comics and that is what they read were Alien and Predator comics from Dark Horse. So I, I was never really into like superhero comics as a kid uh so the x-men show the animated show was my first exposure probably into marvel in general and then like i said kind of coming full circle 
Uh, you know, as I, I got older, I was in university and stuff, uh, living in Newfoundland. I actually came into the X-Men from Alpha Flight because I was reading Alpha Flight. And then I was like, you know what? I, I, I've always stayed away from X-Men more to do with, you know, I'm a big comic collector. So I was like, if I get into X-Men, I'm going to have to buy everything. It's going to cost me a fortune. You know, I have to drop out of school or something. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, I, I just, cause I'm also a sucker. I dived in anyway. And, uh, then, yeah, I, I mean, still, even when I read them now, like I think about, uh, you know, even like the voice of Rogue, the voice of Ro Wolverine and these animated shows, like that's who in my head when I read them, I'm hearing just because of that exposure. When, God, my listeners are so tired of hearing me talk about my childhood trauma. <laughs> <laughs> when I was uh, when I was 13 in 1991, uh, my mom married a man who was very abusive, and I was already growing up gay in a in a uh, a family with a lot of trauma and in a very religious environment. And I was carrying a lot of weight. When the uh, I used to go buy the comics off the spinner racks at the grocery store, and when the animated series hit, I was reflecting on this recently. It felt different. It hit different from the very first couple of episodes. One of the main characters, Beast, ends up in jail. You see prejudice depicted on the screen. Morph, at least at the beginning, you believe is killed. It felt consequential. Uh, there were diverse characters working together. There was something really powerful about that. And uh, X-Men became not only something I could obsess over, but something I could escape into. And again, I've shared this story on the show a number of times. When I was uh, when I was 15, I went to the local comic book shop in Idaho Falls, Idaho, of all places, and I said, I can't afford comics anymore, but I need comics, please. And they ended up giving me a job and paying me in comic books, which and ended up kind of transcending into ultimately what became me working for Marvel, because I had this giant collection of thousands of comic books at home. Uh, it, it was really special for me uh, all, all the way through. And I recently got to rewatch the entire animated series with my own children, who are also both queer. And uh, watch them, my, my little one's hatred of Jubilee and them doing uh, 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 storms like very dramatic. I summon the thunderstorms! And, you know, and Rogue, of course, was their favorite. And Mr. Sinister creeped them out. And it just was delicious to revisit them. The handbooks, uh, when I worked on the handbooks, they, they look at the animated series as an alternate universe. It's parallel to what happens in our comics. So it's just another version of what could have been. And uh, and they're very special in that way. It's a, it's a really wonderful thing. I don't know, Laura, if you have any comments on all this, we'd love to hear it, of course. Oh, my God. That just warms my heart, thinking about you with your little ones watching <laughs> it. And, you know, and, and the fact that so many people have told me that they escaped into our show, like that our show was a safe place for them. Um they would rush home from school or they would get up in the morning and they would, they just couldn't wait to get there and be and watch and see what was happening. And they felt part of it and they felt safe. And that makes me feel really good that if we can do that and, and that's our intention to continue that with X-Men 97 as well. Uh, I graduated from uh, I graduated from Ninja Turtles into X Men. It was just a whole different world. Uh, here, my my listeners can't hear, but those are my kids. Oh, oh no. they're sweet! <laughs> they're oh my cute. god, they're adorable. 
Uh, okay, this has been so lovely, and we're about to get real silly, but I, Lenore, it's uh, it's wonderful to hear your stories and to get to know you as a person, and I'm really looking forward to your book and your album, and uh, especially to X-Men 97, which I uh, I can't wait. I got to interview Jerry Gaylord on the show recently. I've been chatting with some of the other creators. Uh, just I'm so excited for the whole thing. It's going to be uh, just a thrill ride. I'm, I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Um, Thank you. With this, let's uh, let's transition into our issue review. We're going to get really silly for a few minutes, and uh, we'll kind of cover this part quickly. It's only an 11-page story. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Now, in the in the first part of the story, we had a long conversation about Jerry Siegel, the creator of Superman and what he represents. Uh, he is uh, the guy who wrote this story uh, kind of later on in his career. And we had some questions about him at the end of the episode. So I actually emailed Roy Thomas, who has been on my show a couple times. He was the editor uh, of a lot of the comic books back then. Uh, here's what Roy had to say about Jerry's work on this three-part Angel series. So very quickly, he says, Jerry's Angel stories were, I believe, originally meant to be printed in X-Men, but uh, they were put on the shelf for a while before being published elsewhere, which was in the Kazar and Marvel Tales uh, magazines we're reviewing. Uh, Jerry had become a proofreader, not really quite an assistant editor, but he was good at his job, but he had to move to California so his daughter could attend a free university there. Otherwise, he'd have continued working for Marvel. The only real problem during Jerry's half year or so at Marvel was that he wanted to use his Jerry S. pseudonym from uh, Mighty Comics and Archie, which he wrote for for a while, uh, on the Angel stories, and Stan was absolutely opposed to that. He'd given Jerry a job at Marvel when he was a refugee from DC, and he felt that Marvel should at least get the benefit of having the name of the co-creator of Superman on the stories that he wrote, and he, uh, he signed off, best wishes, Roy. So that answered a couple of the questions we had about uh, Jerry's work at Marvel and uh, where he went after that. Uh, but he, uh, of course, is just a phenomenal creator who has not been with us in a long time, but he changed the entire comic book industry. So it's a wild that he is the writer on this particular series. Uh, any comments on uh, what it was like? Uh, Derek, maybe you're a good one to, to ask or to start with this one. What was it like for you to visit this three-part little story about Angel? It's uh, It's nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I had I had known that I mean Angel's parents had died. I had heard of the Dazzler through the John Byrne Hidden Year stuff. Um, seeing it here in all of its early Bronze Age silly glory was was a new experience. But I, I was honestly shocked. Like literally, I had not even realized that Siegel had done any work at Marvel. And then when I looked, it was like four or five issues. And but it was cool to read his writing here because just late in 2022, I had read through a lot of old Legion of Superhero comics where, and he had been one of the big creators of that. And so it was really neat to see the stylistic difference, A, because Marvel works a lot differently in the Bronze Age than DC did in the Silver Age. Absolutely. And um, yeah, like it, there, there's a few moments in here where, well, like on, on, the, on the front page, the cop, like Angel is raging. And it's very obvious visually that he's raging, and yet still the dialogue says, "Boy, look at that guy! He's looking angry." And it's like <laughs> that's that's something from the 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 Silver Age of DC, where like 
the people were well drafted, but they were not very emotive. And so the only way for the reader to know what emotion was going on was for the writer to put in like gasp or choke or, you know, sob <laughs> and explain that they're having an emotion. So it was, it, I, I felt, I, I don't know if it's true, but it felt to me a little bit like he, he was importing a bit of that style from DC. Uh, uh, Rowan or Lenore, if you got a chance to look over the stories, did you guys have any thoughts on the art or the portrayal? I mean, again, it's very 1970. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Ramita Jr., who I believe did the art for these ones. Or senior, well, no, sorry, this, senior. Uh, this one's actually George Tuska. Oh, is it Tuska that did this? But there one? are some similarities in their styles. Yeah. Okay. That's that. Yeah. That's kind of why I had thought immediately him. But uh, I, I, I was a big fan of this art. I think this is the first time you've had me on the show that Stanley hasn't been the writer, which I'm sure everyone that listens to your show is like, it's probably a good thing because I think every time I come on, I complain about the writing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I thought, yeah, I, I also didn't know that he had ever written for Marvel. And as a a big, you know, uh, I was probably a little more in the DC when I first really started getting heavy in the comic reading. I, I'm a huge Superman guy. Uh, you know, big enough that I have like tattoos and stuff. So just kind of finding out that, you know, this cr massive creator from DC actually did a little bit of work over in Marvel uh, was just like a really big shock to me. And uh, I can't stress enough how, how happy I was that it was not Stanley writing. It gets you kind of into the, a little into the inside of like the boys club that existed back then in uh, yes. the 60s, early 70s, and kind of how that was the whole industry. Uh, okay, so we're going to cover this first part uh, rather uh, quickly. I'll cover the first pages here. Uh, Angel has not had a good relationship with his parents necessarily. We can understand his rage and grief uh, if we're looking at this from a character level. But he's been closeted from his parents for years as a mutant. He straps his wings down. They're very rich, very self-involved. They sent him off to boarding school for a long time. Uh, so Angel being uh, outraged again, his dad has just been murdered, uh, and we can understand. He's in his ketchup and mustard, Jean Grey designed costume, uh, the yellow and red, which I actually really kind of love this costume with the red suspenders. And he is just raging. The cop calls him, uh, he he looks like an infuriated falcon, he says. He's so steamed, and the Angel's vowing revenge on the Dazzler. Uh, Fred Duncan, who we love from the early 60s books, uh, is trying to calm him down. He says, you know, you got to let the police handle this. Uh, the law will, will get him. And Angel says, I don't need the law. I've got these two hands. Uh, and then this is almost the most interesting part of the whole story for me. He immediately shifts into kind of evil mutant mode because he sees himself as a little bit different. He's normally the guy that protects humans. But he yells, go on back to your crummy red tape, your homo sapiens laws, Duncan. I'm a homo superior. Maybe that puts me above the laws of ordinary people. And uh, Duncan, who is a human ally, says, knock it off, Angel. You're spewing the rotten philosophy of Magneto, which is a really interesting place to take the story, this idea of uh, the separation of all this. And in his grief, he kind of immediately goes to that space. Uh, he zooms off to go nab the Dazzler, and then we switch back over to the Dazzler in his base. Uh, Derek, describe the Dazzler's costume for us. <laughs> it, is it reminds me. It reminds me a little of the Factor Three costumes and uh, some of the other <laughs> ones we saw in like the 30s and 40s uh, of the X Men. Um, it looks a bit potatoey um, with <laughs> with garnishes. <laughs> so. 
It yeah. is a it is a bedazzled purple hat with a fin and eye holes, uh, some uh, striped purple sleeves, a massive chunky like purple belt, and then the rest of it like an orange jumpsuit. It is not a good look for anyone ever. It's, it's really terrible. But this guy, uh, this guy, I made a mistake, by the way. This guy I called a mutant in our last show. He is not. He's a technology user. He's created a bunch of tech. He's got light-based powers. Uh, he is in his base in the Statue of Liberty, and he is watching some of his men who have been captured by the police. Uh, he, he has uh, apparently doused their costumes in what he calls traceable chemoid particles, uh, he's got some dazzler beams to watch them, uh, and he uh, he knows they're going to be questioned by the police, so he's watching them very closely as uh, Fred Duncan goes to uh, question these men. Uh, it's, a, it's a wild opening. Derek, do you want to take us through the next few pages? Tell us what happens next. Sure. So I think um, the Dazzler is a decisive manager to prevent his captured henchmen from, uh, you know, ratting him out. The Dazzler changes some of their costumes to antimatter, which incinerates them. This is an example to his other minions. And then, of course, next page, not all of them got the memo. So Dazzler is forced to deploy new managerial tools to handle his HR problems. He does this by throwing a very heavy metal chalice into someone's face. They, these are bumblers and dullers and betrayers, and they finally get back to work. This is where our intro right. question came from. He calls them inept apes. <laughs> this, this interaction suggests to me that the Dazzler was building his team in a really tight labor market, and they didn't have the sort of quality minions that Mesmero or Magneto or the Vulture had. With his money, I wonder why he didn't go for robots like Dr. Doom. Uh, that's what I would have done in the early 70s in a labor shortage like that, but maybe it was, who knows? Um, and then Warren has to deal with predatory funeral arrangers trying to strike it rich by the death of a one percenter. And I felt really bad for all the rich people. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. And then um, Warren is also having a hard time dealing with his grief and he blames his weirdly redheaded uh, girlfriend, Candy, for dating him. Uh, so I don't know if she was wearing a wig or had recently been to the hair salon, but normally she's uh, a brunette. And so he says, I was, he says to her photo, she's so lovely, so deadly. <laughs> and uh yeah uh i'm because of the way he was raging on about her i'm kind of glad she wasn't in this issue um i appreciated seeing her in the previous issue but then all of a sudden some energy strikes him and he's teleported into the midst of dazzler's minions and uh he lays into them so much so that one of the minions asks rhetorically hey what's he eat for breakfast t-bone steaks um and then i would think so he's rich of course he eats t-bone steaks for breakfast um and and yeah that's uh th this is uh you you advertised it correctly with silliness uh one of the guys says to to warren he's he's got his wings strapped down here so they don't know he's the angel but he says you would you prefer a knuckles massage which is such a like guys and dolls ridiculous thing to say it's so, so ridiculous uh warren calls them play suit wearing bums there's a there's very very <laughs> Crazy, uh, crazy dialogue. I don't know if other writers of the early Bronze Age of Marvel would have written it with quite that. Because the thing is, when you think about um, Seagull, like he literally debuted the Golden Age in 1938. He worked through the entire Golden Age. Then he worked through the entire Silver Age. And now there's like a new age, which is the Bronze Age. And like he's carrying the styles from those previous two ages, I feel. Uh, Rowan, walk us through the last four pages. Yeah, so uh, you know the the henchmen finally uh, knock Angel unconscious and kind of 
place them in this uh, enclosed office space or what they think is an enclosed office space uh, because, uh, you know, Angel uh, sees a vent. He uh, he says, hey, there's a vent here. <laughs> like, I guess they just weren't thinking about it. Um so and, and mind you, there this is all in the base of the Statue of Liberty, which is not yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of separate rooms. Also, I guess uh, you, you know because they're still some confusion on uh, you know they don't know this is Angel necessarily. So he's got his suit on on underneath his business suit, his morning <laughs> funeral suit. So he uh, you know rips it off and says, "All right, you know it's time to." Uh, Climb through this vent, which is not, I'm sure, not very fun with wings at all. Uh, you know, he actually mentions that his uh wings are almost aching to uh be unfurled in the take flight, which is not being able to happen in this vent. Uh, and then uh, you know, we have Angel listening in the next uh page there. We have Angel listening to uh Dazzler give a speech to his henchmen, uh basically uh bragging about killing Angel's father. Uh, and then this is kind of you know the classic uh, you know, you, you guys touched on it, this writing from the golden age and the silver age where you know, it's a comic book. We have to have the villain kind of say what his plan is. What What's the grand scheme? And that grand scheme is to uh, loot the planet. And, you know, he can uh, he can do that. And then Angel, you know, gets angry enough at hearing this because, of course, they're saying now that... Uh, you know, Warren Worthington, now that he is dead, uh, that he can do this. So Angel swoops in and attacks Dazzler. Uh, so he gets to unfurl those feathers a little bit. He, uh, if you look at the one panel, he punches a guy and his tooth is literally knocked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, what? Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. no, you're fine. Go ahead. No, no. Uh, yeah, well, and like I said, just the, even the, the the tooth being knocked out, like, there's just so many callbacks to, like, the Golden Age stuff of, like, kind of these, you know, early superheroes and, like, hard-boiled detective stories, just kind of the talk, the the physical altercations, the, the silliness of it. So then we get to the uh, next panel uh, where... Angel, uh, you know, obviously uh, defeats all of Dazzler's henchmen. Uh, I'm, I'm sure all of them are going to need dental surgery. The ones that didn't melt away in antimatter, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the few he deemed uh, he deemed worthy to live. And then, uh, yeah, Angel's going to turn his fury uh, to Dazzler. And he is kind of stopped in his tracks because Dazzler reveals that he has candy and she is not dead. She is just memorized. So don't uh, do not think she is dead. He says that just because her eyes are closed, it is not death. Hmm. And, and then, uh, yep. yeah, Candy is gorgeous always. I love this <laughs> character. She's she's very like hourglass figure in her tight green dress. I love her. 
<laughs> yeah, I I always kind of uh whenever like candy comes up, I always think of uh Joan from Mad Men. That's kind of the uh the vibe I get from Candy. Absolutely. <laughs> and then uh yeah, so then our uh, our final page is uh, Dazzler, who uh, at this point we find out uh, doesn't know who Angel really is. Uh, you know, reveals why he has candy, uh, and basically, uh, although Angel, you know, kind of at the beginning was blaming Candy for, uh, you know, being involved in the death of his father somewhat. Uh, he knows that he can't let it hurt because he's a hero. He's gotta, he's gotta save the day. He's gotta save the innocent people. And he says, even if I'm mad at her, you know, I gotta, I gotta help her. So, uh, but then Dazzler has his men restrain Angel, uh, so they can, you know, take off his mask. They want to find out who is Angel, uh, because you could never tell with uh, that amazing mask, uh. <laughs> And then, yeah, we kind of end the issue off where they are about to pull the mask off. And uh, you got to find out next episode about the uh, mind-blowing conclusion to the epic angel adventure. Now, the K-Star series is canceled after this. So this ends up getting, the third part ends up getting run in the back of uh, another anthology title called Marvel Tales. We'll be covering that in our next episode. And spoilers, but it's, you know, 53 years ago, so it's fine. Angel's uncle is actually the Dazzler. So it's his his evil uncle Bertram Worthington, who's appeared a total of eight times in all of Marvel's history. We will cover all of those appearances on this podcast. A really fun deep dive into continuity of those. For, for those of you that are familiar with the Chuck Austin run, uh, Chuck Austin creates a character named Maximus Lobo, who's connected to the Worthington Company. And Maximus claims that he has a working relationship with the Dazzler and that he was the one who ordered Angel's father killed. But that's much farther along in the continuity. Uh, Lenore, what was it like for you to look at this series or even hear us talk about it? It's, it's I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Um, no, it was excellent. The, we we laugh a lot on this podcast about old ridiculousness. It's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, Derek and Rowan, do you have any final thoughts about what it was like to uh, visit this title? I, I think uh, I've always thought that until Warren became Archangel, he was a tough character to write. He's rich. He's good looking. He has no obvious impediments to anything he wants to do. Um, and you know, in that sense, he's like Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. I think this is the first time I've seen any, I think of the original X-Men have a real meaningful arc. Like, I mean, Cyclops, of course, has his angst about his eye blast and he's constantly worried that he's going to kill somebody or whatever else. And that he's, he's that sort of emotional angst in, in the early X-Men. But in, this is a meaningful actual moment for Angel. Like, I mean, in ways that the other early X-Men, the original X-Men didn't have meaningful moments. Like, maybe even if, even in their origin stories, I'm not sure how much I felt for them. Whereas I felt really here, like, you know, you're, they really do make us feel like his dad just died, you know? And that's, yeah. uh, so it, it worked, I think, despite the silliness, I think there was an emotional core to it, which I was surprised that they were able to do. It's fun. I actually really like this story. Uh, Rowan, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, kind of the same thing where, yeah, like, uh, you know, Warren is definitely kind of one of these impervious characters, especially in the really early X-Men stuff. So I did like to see him going through this struggle. I mean, 
I feel if you're kind of just picking this up now, you're going to be a little disappointed. It's probably not the dazzler you wanted, but, uh, <laughs> you know, sadly, Warren's uncle is is always going to have to be the other dazzler in uh, in this X-Men universe. Uh, as we are wrapping up, we're going to continue this in our next episode, again, capping off this story. And then we'll follow up again on this story in the X-Men, the Hidden Years stuff that we'll be covering as we move into the summer uh, on this podcast. I am uh, feeling just so warm and uh, what a what a kind, vulnerable, but also hilarious and wonderful and inspiring uh, conversation this has been with the three of you. I um I consider myself a Canadian at heart, which is a weird thing to say. <laughs> I genuinely do. If I didn't have kids here, I would be. I'd be up there. I think. Uh, I. Uh, I'm a. I'm a Bring huge. Them. I'm a huge fan of years. And Lenore, really, truly, what a what a beautiful story you've had to share with us. And I'm so excited for everything you have coming up. I know you've been on vacation uh, for the last few days, and it is very late in Spain. So thank you for sticking with us. Uh, I'm also going to be meeting you, I believe, uh, when you come to the Uncanny Experience uh, 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 convention uh, in Minneapolis. I believe oh, we will awesome. be there. So I'll look forward to coming up and introducing myself in person. Right so, on, right on. As we are wrapping up, where can uh, where can people find each of you online? And recognizing we're putting this out on uh, on next Monday, the first Monday in April, is there anything you'd like to plug that we have not talked about today? Uh, let's go in the order of uh, Lenore, Rowan, and then Derek again. Uh, no, I think we've talked about everything. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on the show. I had a great time, and I loved your other panel or panel members. Um, loved the stories, loved hearing them. And, uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at, I think it's at Zan Lenore on Twitter and on Instagram at Lenore Zan. I'm on Facebook. You can follow me there and listen, maybe I'll come back on the show closer to when, uh, X-Men 97 is on or after it's aired and we can have another chat. Sugar. I would love you. I want to. I want to bring uh, you and Bo DeMeo and Larry Houston. I'll have you all on. <laughs> They're amazing. Oh yeah. <laughs> They're fat, fabulous. Thank you so so much. And Lenore, if you need to sign off from there, that's completely fine. We'll uh, we'll wrap up. I know you've got uh, a long night ahead and a day of travel tomorrow. So thank, thank you, thank you, you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, thank you so much. Nice to meet all you guys, and thank we'll you. see you again. Okay. Thank you. Mwah. Bye, love. Bye. 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 Uh, and uh, Rowan, do you want to go next? Yeah, so I guess uh, I don't have too much to plug, but I know all my other co-hosts be angry at me if I didn't tell you, uh, <laughs> you know, to make sure to go uh, check out, follow It Slays podcast. We're on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Slasher, which is a uh, horror movie specific social media, Tumblr. And then you can uh, listen to all our episodes on anywhere you get podcasts. I think when this comes out, we're, we will have just released a uh, a Canadian classic review. Uh, we just reviewed Ginger Snaps. So uh, a, a Canadian werewolf film from 2000. So, yeah, go uh, check that out and, uh, you know, say hello. I think of you from time to time. We host a monthly bad movie night at my house where we make cocktails and just laugh. We just watched Leprechaun. We've done like 
Velocipaster. Oh, very um, nice. Uh, Thanks Killing. Like these just awful, <laughs> awful horror movies. And I can hear your very unique voice in my head sometimes <laughs> when we're watching these shows. We just we just finished reviewing Leprechaun 3, actually, for St. Patrick's Day. So, uh, you know. Le- hey. Leprechaun 1 had its moments. There was the time where he got on the pogo stick and jumped on top of the man till he died. Yes. Thought, what is happening <laughs> Lepre- Leprechaun 3 is where it really hits its stride, where it kind of goes in the full horror comedy. And what's better than the Leprechaun in Las Vegas? <laughs> oh, we'll go there again, I'm sure. Uh, and then over to Derek. So I feel like the this just preceding conversation has showed me how much culture I'm still missing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm Derek Kunsken. Uh I'm... Uh, my my name Derek K U N S K E N uh, on Twitter and on the web will get you to my website or or whatever. Um, I have a collection out. Uh, it's called Flight from the Ages um, of short stories and novelettes and uh, novellas. Um, and I have a new novel coming out in uh, June or July of this year. Uh, it's called The House of Saints. It's concluding a duology that started with The House of Sticks, which is basically a family family saga set on uh, the clouds of Venus. And uh, really proud of that. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing that on the stands everywhere. Wonderful. Is it okay to talk about your personal news? Uh, let's give it a minute. <laughs> Derek has Soon. some big life events happening, but I'll let oh, you know very nice. <laughs> I'll see if I can do an exclusive with you, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I oh, oh, God, I'm introducing myself again. Jeez, that tells you where <laughs> my brain is. Uh, I will edit that part out. Uh, lastly, uh, you can find Gray Malkin Lane at Gray Malkin PP Lake Podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. The show, I know I keep saying things like this, but it keeps getting crazier. We are booked into mid-August at this point, which is insane. Uh, so people that I'm reaching out to or that I hear from, I'm like, ah, uh, how's September look? Because <laughs> there's just so much going on. Uh, our next episode immediately after this is going to be Marvel Tales number 30, uh, finishing the Angel story uh, and featuring the incredible writer Stuart Moore, who I I uh, am very excited to meet. Uh, the one right after that is uh, is reviewing Cable Minus One with the incredible uh, transgender writer and activist, uh, Charlie Jane Anders, uh, who's currently working on New Mutants. Uh, and we've got so much stuff coming up uh, after that. Uh, Derek, go ahead. I just wanted to say congratulations. Like being booked into August and September, like your show, like we've watched it grow from the beginning and like, it's just amazing. Like just hats off to you, Chad. Uh, first of all, second of all, to all the listeners out there. I mean, if you're hearing this, just uh, like tell a friend, um, tell two friends, um, or support Chad on Patreon. Um, it's totally yeah. worth it. Um, and just anyway, congratulations, Chad. This is amazing. Thank you. That really means a lot. The episode just before this, uh, where we featured Connor Goldsmith, he and I have a very frank conversation about how much time it takes to produce a podcast like this. And we're yeah. putting in a lot of effort. Uh, the next thing I'm going to announce is the next Patreon episode. Uh, I get to have J.M. Mateus back on the show. And oh, we're going to wow. do the classic character, Professor Power, who is a J.M. Mateus. Uh, creation and one of my favorite 80s villains uh, uh yeah it's three dollars a month on the patreon and that's really one of the best ways to support and then uh spread the news and derek you're someone who's been there with me from the beginning i got to say to you after you won the jeopardy game like how thrilled i was that you won it because you've kind of been with me for the whole ride and i just it's just such an honor uh and uh i, I mean i'll tell you offline if you want but we have some just enormous names and content coming up 
uh, including episodes that are going to introduce Storm and Wolverine soon. Uh, we've got some really, really genuinely, uh, I'm I'm thrilled. Uh, this is an early announcement, but I'm gonna say this here as well. One of the episodes I'm recording uh, next week is a panel of all professional drag queens. Uh, and we're going to do a fashion nice. review of the 60s costumes. It's going to be just amazing. I've been planning it for months. So yeah, we have some really juicy, incredible stuff coming up. But thank you for taking that moment to celebrate. That's uh, that's a really big deal. Uh, thank you, everybody. I'm going to go uh, smile for the rest of the evening. Uh, talk to me and talk to Lenore Zan. That was just wonderful. Uh, thanks for being there with me, guys. It's great to see you both. Uh, all right, everybody. We will uh, we'll see you back here next time on uh, Gray Malkin Ring. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.